in the upper room. So they had gathered there in the upper room. Remember, Jesus had them find a place where they could have Passover together. And so we have a lot of red letters. If you have the red letter edition, you have a lot of red letters in the next five chapters. The setting was exclusive. Uh, Jesus' public ministry to the multitudes is over It's at this particular point in time. It's Jesus now. He's with the 12 men that he handpicked. There may have been, we don't know because there's no mention of them uh, in, in John's account, but there may have been others that were gathered there in the upper room. Maybe some of the women were there. We don't know for sure. But this is exclusive. This is private. This was uninterrupted. There wasn't people coming in or, or leaving, you know. And so, Lord, we pray as we begin this section of, of John's gospel account, we pray, Father, that we would have ears to hear what your spirit has to say to us. Father, we pray that as your people, we would be eager to hear and to then apply the things that are applicable to us as your disciples, as your followers, Jesus. We love you. We thank you in advance for the time we're going to spend in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll note that it says in verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Uh, I don't know about you, and I hope that you read the text long before Sunday morning. I hope that you're spending time in the word. You'll glean so much more. I promise you, you'll glean so much more if you're reading the text, you know, throughout the week. But as I read the text this past week, there were different words that just kind of jumped off the page to me personally. The word new in uh, verse 1 there. You go down verse uh, 3, knowing, Jesus knowing. You go down a little bit further, we have the word know. We have new in verse 11 and know in verse, at the end of verse uh, 12 there. And so John is communicating to his readers. He wants us to know that Jesus was well aware of what was going to take place next. Jesus knew that the hour had come. Well, you know, if you're new to the Gospel of John, you might say, well, what hour would that be? And of course, as we read the text, we're told the hour that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. This hour, this, this idea of hour, this specific time, it's unique to John's gospel account. We see it in John chapter 2, where Jesus said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, for his hour had not yet come. Then you get to John chapter 12 and verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man might be glorified. John chapter 13, our verse here, it says Jesus knew that his hour had come. And then the last we'll see of that is in John chapter 17, when Jesus was praying, praying for them, praying for us, praying for those that would believe, you know, after, of course, his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. He said, Father, the hour has come. So you read John's gospel account and you know, we see that Jesus lived 
in expectation or anticipation of this particular hour. Guys, the things that we read, the things that we study in the next five chapters, which it's going to take us some time to get through five chapters at the pace I go. Um, when you read these things, it's important to remember that within 24 hours, Jesus would be hanging upon a Roman cross. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew precisely what was coming. None of these took Jesus by surprise. They surely took his disciples by surprise, all of these things. But it did not take Jesus by surprise. So let's just assume that in the upper room there, it's Jesus, his 12 apostles, hand-picked men. Um, so you have 13 Judas is excluded. We'll see that he's excluded in verse 30, which is interesting because Judas is there while Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and saying the things that he said there up until his departure. Um, we know that, that six of the apostles are mentioned by name. Peter's mentioned by name in these five chapters. John's mentioned, Judas, of course, Thomas, Philip, Jude. Six are mentioned. Um, the other six are there. We know that they're there. The, the text tells us that they're there, but they're not mentioned. I, I said this at the first service that, you know, um, Chuck Smith always used to have a saying, I wish I could remember, we only have one life to live. What's the rest of it there? Do you remember? We only have one life to live. I probably have it. I do have it in my old Bible. It's, uh, we only have one life to live. We'll soon be passed. We'll and, right, and only what's done for Christ will last. Yes, great. And it's so true. And I, I think it's interesting, you know, have you ever wondered why, well, there were 12, and then, of course, 11, once Judas was gone. And then you have 12 again with Paul, you know, one born out of due season. Um, and yet, we only know about half of them. Uh, we only know those that kind of stand out. Of course, the Peter, James, and John, we know, uh, we know of uh, a few more, but, but we don't know much about the other, uh, you know, apostles. What did they do? You know, if you read extra biblical literature like Fox's Book of Martyrs or something like that, we see that these men went on, you know, Thomas went on. I believe that Thomas went to uh, India. Uh, which would be considered India by our standards today. I don't know what it was back then. But, um, and he ministered, of course, and they all went out and they did their thing. But it's interesting that we don't know much about at least half of them. I think, for me, my reading of the text, our text today, if there was a key phrase that jumped out at me, the key phrase would be his own. His own. He loved his own. That jumps out at me because in context, in the context of, of the whole thing, what was happening there, what was taking place there and all, what Jesus knew, what he understood, I, I, I can't help but think that that is by far probably the most important thing that we could get from our text. His own. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
his own, his own. Chapters 13 through 17, they have to do with his own. It's not for everybody. It's for his own. You might not like that, but remember the road is narrow <laughs> that leads to life, that leads to, to heaven, leads to the Father. And, and this narrow road, you know, is for his own. You say, well, I want to be his own. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I don't buy the Calvinist view that God has appointed some to damnation and others to eternal life, to salvation. I just don't see it in the scriptures. I really don't. I understand where they come up with it. I just don't believe that it's a true biblical doctrine. I say that simply not to offend anyone that might lean toward Calvinism. I point this out because the things I'm going to be touching on today, if you have that mindset as I share some of the things, you might conclude, well, maybe I'm just not chosen, which in my opinion is a cop-out. What a cop-out. I would say, you want to be chosen? Yeah. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I mean, even Spurgeon, that Calvinist, that prince of preachers that preached great messages to that tabernacle, 6,000 people. That was a megachurch in his day. And it would be a megachurch by today's standards. You know, he talked about, of course, God's choosing. The Bible teaches that God chooses, that God selects. You know, he has his elect and all. But that... Um, you know, there is that opportunity for all to come to repentance, to place their faith in Christ. Well, anyway, enough of that. Jesus, he came to die in obedience to the Father. Jesus, we're told in the gospel in miniature, John 3, 16, Jesus, his coming was an act of love for all of mankind. But Jesus had and has a special love for his own. Are you his own? Are you his? I mean, this is something, if you don't remember anything else that was said today or done today or anything else, you need, that needs to be ringing in your head. Are you his? His own. Well, it says that the devil, in verse 2, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. We need to be careful. You know, um, I mentioned from time to time, you know, growing up uh, in, the, in the 70s, I was a teenager. And so um, there was a, a rock opera. I never saw the rock opera but I saw the movie that came from the rock opera, and the rock opera was Jesus Christ Superstar. And some of you old timers might remember, I mean, really bad production, I mean, really cheap, really inexpensive film and everything. I thought it was cool because all of the actors in, in, in the, the musical, they kind of look like me, you know, they were kind of hippies. They were hippies. I was a wannabe hippie, you know. And, and, um, and so, uh, you know, the whole thing, uh, you know, was, was about Jesus and his life and his crucifixion and everything. But, but the, the film, the, the musical, really was not biblical. 
It was not biblical for many, many reasons, but it was surely not biblical because it kind of ends with the cast of Jesus Christ Superstar, you know. Uh, they get in a bus, they're leaving, and they all, as they're getting in a bus, they all kind of glance up at that hill where Jesus was crucified. I mean, it just really ends, not with resurrection, it really ends with doom and gloom. But in the musical, after Judas had um, betrayed and, and, and really, you know, done what, of course, the scriptures tell us that he did, there's a scene and of course, he's the one, Judas is a character in the musical who sings a song that the old timers will remember because it was played on the radio all, all the time. Jesus Christ, superstar. Who do you think you are? And in the, in the movie, as Judas, the character Judas was singing it, he was on like a crane. He was standing on a crane dressed all in white. So it was supposed to symbolize that he was just simply doing what God had called him to do. He was really the hero in the story as he was ascending into heaven. Mm. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Judas was not a victim. <laughs> Judas, Judas was with them from the beginning. Judas heard what the others heard. Judas saw what the others saw. Judas was given privileges that the others were not given. Judas was the treasurer the one who was enabled to take the money and, and to really watch over the, the funds of this ministry team as they traveled about. Judas was there from the beginning, but he was not one of his, and Jesus knew it. And so to me, here's some life application that would get my attention. So you could be a part of something. You could be a part of a ministry. You could be a part of a church. You could be a part of ministry in the sense that, that I'm serving. I'm leading worship. I'm playing an instrument. I'm, I'm teaching a Sunday school class. I'm, you know, fill in the blank. You could be doing all these things. You're a part of a church and never be his. Never be his. I never truly surrendered my life to the Lord. I did these things because I wanted to do these things or because of what I got out of this or, or whatever it might be, whatever was motivating me. What was motivating me was of the flesh. It wasn't of the spirit of God. And I'm not his. This is really something we should consider. He said, or it says, John tells us that he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. You know, Jesus never gave up on them. Judas gave up on him. But he never stopped loving them. And if he never stopped loving them, then he's never going to stop loving us. He loved them to the end. It literally means to the fullest extent, to the uttermost. His love has no limits. We sing it. That's one of the worship songs that we sing. I was sharing with the first service that recently, in the past couple of years, I've, I've done some, some memorial services, um, and I've been there with people who uh, have died or they were close to death. And I found it interesting that a number of these older people, so older people, so I'm, you know, I don't, 
obviously we don't know what's in the heart of each other, right? Uh, we don't know where people are. We can make assumptions. We make assumptions. Well, they, they're faithful, attending church, and I, I think that they know the Lord. I think that they're believers. I think that they, they know the Lord. And, and that's an assumption we make as, as kind of outsiders. Only they, the Lord, knows for sure. I just thought it was interesting in a few of these cases, I would have the individual say to me as I came to visit, I hope I'm saved. Or sometimes it's phrased like this, I hope I've done enough. Where I usually go on, I always go on, to encourage them, if you believe in Jesus, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he has saved us. It's not works, it's not merited, it's not earned. It's received by faith. He's done the work. He's done, if you will, the heavy lifting. He's done the dying. He's done the resurrecting. He's done the ascending. He's done the forever interceding for us. He's done the work. If you're believing in him, you are his. So I tried to reassure them. But I'll be honest with you. I'm a little stumbled by it when I hear questions like that. Now, maybe it was just a moment of weakness. But there's a part of me that thinks, should there be a question at the end of our life? I mean, really, I mean, this is it. I mean, you're like on the on the threshold of eternity, you're, you know, you're going to experience death, and this is it, and there's no stopping this thing. And should it be a time where a question mark hangs over your life? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think as young believers, that question comes up. From time to time, maybe I'm not saved. You know, you mess up. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not saved. You know, I talk about Calvinism because, you know, there was a time when Calvinism uh, really kind of took hold of the church and it, it seemed to take hold with a lot of young men. And I'll, I'll be honest, and I thought this from the very beginning and I stand upon my opinion, that it was young men driven by their own pride. We called them, not me, but authors writing about the young, mad Calvinist. Their goal, their evangelistic target, other Christians, not non-believers, other Christians. It's interesting to me that kind of that phase of the angry, young, Calvinist believer who pounds the pulpit and says, I know this to be so, that many of them are deconstructing their faith. Wow. That's not good. There's a question mark that hangs over their life. Is this true? Maybe they ask. I keep messing up. Am I ordained, preordained to mess up? Is this really God's will for my life? See, because the will has been diminished. 
in hyper-Calvinism. Maybe I'm not chosen as they begin to deconstruct their faith. Sad. It's dangerous. Are you his? It's the spirit in us that bears witness to us, to our spirit, that we are his. There should not be a question mark. Now, I don't want to shame anyone or embarrass anyone if you're, if you're dealing with that. I just want to challenge you that maybe the reason there's a question mark is because Jesus, you believe in him, but as far as your day-to-day living, your job, your home, your business dealings, your whatever, Jesus is, Jesus, go stand over there. You know I love you. Just, just go stand over there. And he's kind of an addition to your life. He's kind of a side thing. You got Jesus on the side rather than Jesus being your life. Remember what Paul said? I've died. The life I live, I live in Christ. Remember that? I mean, it's like, it's like I, 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 I died. When did you die, Paul? Oh, I died when I was Saul on the Damascus Road, you know. And I've been dying every day since then. There shouldn't be a question mark. Are you his? I hope you're his. Wouldn't it be tragic to be like a Judas, to be so close to Jesus, and yet you miss it? Wow. That'd be horrible. Well, Jesus... Look at verse 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So Jesus knew. Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart. Verse 1. Jesus knew that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Verse 2. And and Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Verse 3. And so Jesus took those hands that the Father has put all things into. And he pulls off his garment. And he takes a towel. I don't think it was a terry cloth towel like we would dry off with. He took a towel and he girded himself. And for most of us, that means nothing. But I'll tell you, for the early biblical, or those reading the scripture closer to the, the time frame, they would realize that this was profound because Jesus took on, as he girded himself, he took on the role of a slave. A slave. And then he began to make his way around and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And we might say, yeah, that was the culture at that time. Foot washing was the culture at that time, but that's not what Jesus was doing. I suggest to you, these were Hebrew men, that when they rented that upper room, when they came to that upper room to have their Passover, They stopped at the door or inside the door, washed the dust, the dirt off of their feet, dried it, went in and sat down. Thus, 
their feet had already been washed as far as culture is concerned. What Jesus did was different. It was new. It was for an example. It was an example to be followed. Look at verse 15, dropping down. It says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Do you know that some Christian cultures, some Christian churches, groups, actually have different ordinances that they they keep? Of course, they keep baptism. They keep the Lord's Supper. And some keep foot washing. Uh, Calvary Chapel, Grass Valley, before we came there, uh, when the, the first pastor who planted that church, they used to have foot washing. It was Calvary Chapel, Grass Valley, before we came there, and of course afterwards, but it was known as the hippie church. I mean, they just, you know, they, they were a church that people in our community didn't take seriously because they allowed all these hippies, you know, to come to that church. And so they would baptize believers, they would partake of communion, and they would have foot washing. Have you ever washed anyone's feet? I mean, physically washed someone's feet? It's, um, I'll be honest with you, I'd rather wash someone's feet than have my feet washed. I'm sure it's a pride thing. I had a fellow one time, he showed up, and a fellow who came to church here, I knew him and everything, and and uh, I had been going through something, and, and I think he kind of sensed it, and he came in, and he says, I'm here to wash your feet. And I think he, he was speaking symbolically because, you know, that's what we do sometimes as Christians. We just, and I said, oh, praise the Lord, you know. He goes, take your shoes off. I'll be right back. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> and he went out to his car and brought in a little, you know, bucket and water and and he washed my feet, and he's just speaking scripture over me. And he got up and uh, laid his hand on my shoulder and prayed for me. It was so strange for me. It was very humbling. I did not like it, to be honest. It just felt odd to me. Well, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Jesus setting, setting an example. Do you know, guys that we're told from Matthew and from Luke that there was actually a debate that was happening there in the upper room as they were eating their meal before this whole foot watching thing took place. Do you remember it? Which of us are the greatest? Could you imagine a conversation like that? I'm better than you. What are you talking about? You know it, you know. I mean, it's just so weird. I can't even imagine being in a conversation like that. Who's the best, you know? And they have this argument going on. Jesus, you know, who knows all things, you know. Remember, and this is a wonderful thing. When you go through the gospel accounts, Jesus answers questions that were never asked out loud. That would get your attention. Can you imagine if people could do that? Hey, Joe, I know you're thinking of lunch, but put it aside, man. Come on. We're setting the word right now. You... <gasps> That'd be a dangerous thing to have that ability. Some people pretend they do, but they're only pretending. Jesus, he takes a tell. He girds himself. He begins to wash the disciples' feet. The tables at that time 
were low tables about the size of a, of a coffee table, about that height, you know, not that size, but that height. And, and it would be in a, in a U shape. And so you would have people, they would recline, they would lay on pillows, they would kind of lay back as you're eating. Some might sit cross-legged or whatever position they were comfortable in, but they surely were not sitting at a table like Leonardo uh, presents in his picture of the Last Supper. That was not true at all. But they would be reclining there. And so perhaps Jesus began, he's making his way around this U-shaped table. Perhaps Peter is at the very end. He gets to Peter. Peter's watching this taking place. Peter, if there's one thing we know about Peter, Peter was man. What do I mean by that? No nonsense. Peter would say things that he probably shouldn't say. Like I said, Peter was a man. And, and, and Peter, maybe he's watching this. And maybe, maybe he's just watching this whole thing with disgust. And he's thinking to himself as, as he makes his way, you know, there's John. I can't believe that John's letting Jesus wash his feet. What's wrong with John? There's always this competition be, between Peter and John, you know. Maybe he was really critical toward John, you know. And then the others, you know, kind of making his way. And he gets to Peter, and Peter protests. You're going to wash my feet? I mean, you could almost picture the expression on his face. I could almost imagine the tone of his voice. <laughs> and, and it wasn't a favorable thing. It wasn't like asking, you know, oh, Lord, you're going to wash my feet. I mean, it was, it was probably no way, not going to happen. Well, of course, we read that. You're not washing my feet. No way. You know, we kind of beat up on Peter because he's kind of an easy target. And I think that if most of us were honest, we probably identify more with Peter than any of the other ones, the little we know about them. But Peter, maybe Peter, as he's watching Jesus go from man to man to man, no one's expecting Judas. I mean, what did, what did Jesus say when he washed Judas's feet, you know? Maybe he's thinking, I've been with Jesus from the beginning. I was among the first that was called by Jesus. You know, there were four of us, two by two. And I was in that first selection of Jesus. I've heard Jesus teach the most profound things. I still don't know what he meant by many of those things. I watched Jesus. He had power over the demonic. People that we would avoid, he would approach. And he'd speak with authority. And the demons would listen and they would flee. Demon, Jesus, he would touch lepers, the untouchables. Boy, we avoided them at all costs. Jesus made everything he did a lesson for us. Remember when Jesus, kind of early on when he first met Peter there, Peter, of course, being a fisherman, he was a businessman, no-nonsense kind of guy. Uh, Jesus, a multitude comes up. They're on the Sea of Galilee, the lake there. And uh, Judas, or Jesus, excuse me, didn't want to be crushed by the mob, so he gets onto Peter's boat, and uh, the other 
fishermen there, apostles, disciples are there on the boat as well. They push out a little bit, and um, you have kind of this natural kind of amphitheater. Oh, by the way, that's something we probably should remember. Like, have you ever been on a lake or you've been on the shore and you've heard people talking <laughs> so clearly, you know, what's that guy looking at over there? I don't know. What's he doing? Oh, he just picked up a stick. I mean, like you could hear everything. Like, I can hear you, you know, because it just kind of bounces off of the water. Jesus gets done teaching. Remember, he said, launch out into the deep and let down your net for a catch. Pay attention to the words of Jesus, guys. Words matter. We should love our Bibles. We should love our Bibles. We should hang on to words. We should get Hebrew studies and Greek studies so that we might appreciate the language more in different, at different times, you know, when needed. He didn't say, let's just go out. You guys can try fishing a little bit and see what's going on. No. He says, launch, drop, catch. It's kind of like, you know, we like to point this out as Bible teachers, you know. Jesus didn't say they were going to drown in the midst of the sea. He says, let us go over, you know. So you kind of listen to what Jesus is saying. We're not going to drown out here. We're going over. We just have a little bit of a storm to deal with in the midst here. You know, P Peter, remember, he, he complained. He protested. Peter is a fisherman. You know, isn't it frustrating when you know what you're doing and someone comes along and they make a suggestion and you're thinking to yourself, you don't know what you're talking about. Again, speaking to the men. <laughs> men, don't you think it's amazing when maybe your wife comes up and she says, why don't you try this? Maybe you're working on the car or something. Why don't you try and you kind of look at your wife like, yeah. And then you do it, you know. Tap on it. What? <laughs> Just tap on it. Sometimes I think the Lord does that just so we'll humble out and say, just listen to your helpmate, you know, and stop being so prideful. But anyway, and when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets were breaking. I don't think they had that problem many times. And when Simon saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You say, why are you sharing that? Because Peter's watching Jesus make his rounds, and there really is no surprise that Peter would protest. Guys, can we think like, like humans, like we are, and not kind of put on the whole spiritual, oh, I wouldn't. I think if there was any humility within us, I think we would protest. You're going to wash my feet, Lord? I need to wash your feet. And then Jesus says a profound statement. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And this changes everything. Okay, Lord, then my head, my hands, my feet, <laughs> my belly, <laughs> my back. I mean, I just wash away, Lord, because I want to have a part with you. In fact, the word part, it literally means allotment or share. And guys, this is, the, I'm going to go back to the question I asked in, in closing. Are you his? Are you his? Are you his? I don't think that Christians need to come to the end of their life with a question mark. I 
hope I'm his. I hope I'm going. I, I hope I belong to the Lord. I think there should be this assurance, and I believe there can be this assurance as we're abiding in Christ and abiding in his word. If Jesus is an addition, if Jesus is kind of a side thing, we believe in him, but he's just a side thing, you're going to have a question. Maybe not at, just at death, maybe in all of your life, you're going to have a question. Am I his? Am I his? Am I his? But I believe that if we're abiding, as he tells us to abide, if we, are, if we, if we see him as our everything, I mean, truly, not games, but truly, Lord, you're my strength. Lord, you're my ever-present help in time of need. Oh, Lord, you are Emmanuel. You are God with me. Oh, Lord. I mean, we're just, we're, we know the scriptures because the scriptures is building our faith because the scriptures speak of him. And we're so thankful for what he's done. Listen, Jesus said, I need to wash you. Jesus died. He is the only acceptable sacrifice. He died on the cross. He died on the cross for what purpose? To wash us, to cleanse us. Not with water, but with his blood. We must receive his sacrificial work of redemption by believing in him. We must accept his washing. It's not universal. It's not universal. The offer is universal, but it's only those who are his that benefit from his death. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in him, believe in his name, who were born not of blood. See, it's not enough to be born into a Christian family. Some of you have a, a wonderful Christian heritage with your parents or grandparents, but that's not enough. Nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus has no fellowship with those who have not been cleansed by him. Are you his? Are you his? Are you? This is something you don't want to play with. You want to make sure I'm his. You know, Jesus, in the beginning of, of chapter 13, really kind of picking up on what we've seen earlier on in John's gospel account, the father had sent Jesus you look at the end of our text today, and, and, and Jesus, in essence, is saying, and now I'm sending you. I'm sending you. And as, I, as, a, as the Father sent me, I am a perfect representative of the Father. Everything I said, everything I did, everything I do is a perfect representation of the Father. He says, but now I'm sending you. See, now it begins to break down. Because Jesus is God, the apostles were not. And it begins to break down. Now you have the human frailties and, and all of that. Aren't you glad that salvation is not based upon perfection? Because no one would be saved but one. And he didn't need to be saved. <laughs> he was the Savior, you know. But, but Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Mario, you guys can come up. I want to 
I want to end, I want you to think about this for a moment. The foot washing, it wasn't for dirt, it was for example. If Christians want to practice foot washing, I guess that's okay, but you need to have the theology behind it. Because it wasn't just an act. It wasn't just kind of a, a ceremonial thing. There's much more to it than just the, the washing of the, of the feet. Jesus said this. He did this as an example. I think of how God is shaking things up in these last days. You know, and I think it's kind of refreshing because I think more and more people are little by little becoming disillusioned by the celebrity pastors and the celebrity churches because sadly, sadly, tragically, they are falling like flies. And we never should be followers of men anyway. I think of some of these men who pretend to be a representation of Christ. The first one who comes to mind is the Pope himself, Papa. Papa. What a fraud. What a heretic. What a, dare I say it, what a false prophet. Yes. But he's not the only one. The Protestant church has plenty. The Copelands, the Hens, the Bickles. <laughs> there are so many, too many to, 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 to name. These men who live like royalty. I forget what pope it was. It was early on in the universal church, the Catholic church, because they were riding in a chariot. And he had some important diplomat with him, and the pope at that time said, neither do we say, now we, now we do not say, silver or gold have I not. And the diplomat in the chariot with him said, but neither can you say, take up your bed and rise. The point was, you've lost the power of the spirit for the treasures of this world. Don't ever fall for it. Don't ever go to a church. Don't ever put yourself under a leadership that, that is living high on the hog and they say, I live like this. I fly in these planes. I drive in these cars. I live in these homes because I'm a representative of Christ because that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Jesus had no place to lie his head. He says to his disciples, I'm sending you. You're not greater than me. I've set an example for you, not just the washing of your feet, but my very life. I set an example for you. I've come as the least, as the younger, not as the great or the greatest. 
Humbly serve. So bottom line, what does it mean? You ought also to wash one another's feet. I would suggest this. I think it looks like this. I think it looks like rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. I think it looks like this. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I think that's what washing one another's feet looks like. I think it means that we are identifying with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think it means that we kind of get down on their level. If they're down in the dumps, we get down with them. Not to stay in the dumps, but to lift them up out of the dumps. Would you stand with me? Lord, we thank you, Father, for the example that you've given us, Lord. The humility. We pray, Father, that we would understand not kind of the, the, the letter of the thing, the doing of the thing, but really the principle behind it, Lord. We pray that you'd give us opportunities this week, Lord. Help us to kind of have a, a little bit narrower thought, Lord. Your word is clear. Paul made it clear that we're to start with the household of God first. Social justice says we're supposed to care for everybody outside the church first. But, Lord, you tell us to care for those within the church first. So help us, Lord, to be sensitive to those around us to help and encourage those around us, Lord. Give us opportunity today, tomorrow, this week, to wash someone's feet. In Jesus' name, amen.